and welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast. This is episode 10, and I'm your host, Julia Wirth, a registered dietitian here in New Haven, Connecticut. Thanks so much for joining me on episode 10. I'm really excited. If you haven't noticed that little jingle at the beginning, things are changing, improving. Um, There's going to be a lot of new stuff coming to Life with Ed, so I'm so glad you've stuck with me this far and that hopefully you'll stick with me as things get even better. Just to start off giving credit where credit is due, that intro song is thanks to my good friend Jacqueline Devine. She's an awesome singer and uh, songwriter, and she's also brand new Master of Fine Arts. So congratulations, Jacqueline, and thank you so, so much um, for helping Life With Ed get one step better. It is episode 10, so that means we've been doing this thing for 20 weeks, which is kind of crazy. And... I've learned a lot about myself as a dietitian, as a interviewer, as a person with an eating disorder. I've learned that I need to be, um, you know, less harsh on myself too. I can't um, expect that my eating disorder, although I think it is so much better and it and it is so much better than it was um, even a year ago, two years ago, definitely four years ago. I'm you know, not done. The recovery still is happening. So um, for everyone listening, this is a reminder that if we've learned one thing in these first 10 weeks, it's that, you know, you can't expect there to be a magic bullet. You can't expect um, one thing to fix your eating disorder or somebody's eating disorder. And you can't expect someone to never have a relapse. I think Will from um, my second episode with a guest, the dad versus eating disorder episode, uh, said it best when he said, you know what, my daughter has done so well so far, but you don't know what could be in store. And I'm not going to take any day, you know, for granted, I'm going to be vigilant um, and make sure that Ed does not come back for her. So I think that's a good message for us moving forward and remembering all of my guests I've had on, Tara, Will, um, Amy Dunham from UConn, Rebecca Bardwell-Dueco from Walden, Nancy Woodward from Girls on the Run, Kirsten Ackerman, a dietitian also in New Haven area, and Carolyn Robin, the track coach from Quinnipiac University have brought us all so much information about what eating disorders are like in the real world, how um, people live with them day to day, and also how we can help prevent them from becoming more prevalent than they already are. Life with Ed, this project has grown in ways I didn't know it would, and I'm really excited to see what will come of my new efforts. Um, In the next series set of 10 episodes, you're going to see some new things. Um, Number one is research. So I'm going to be bringing a research article to the beginning of each episode after this one or uh, in the news media article if there isn't a research one that I want to talk about that week. But if you have any suggestions or research you've seen, please send it my way. I'd love to talk about it and bring it to all of the listeners. This week on the podcast, we have a really incredible guest. Um, I met Beth Rosen, who's a registered dietitian in Southbury, Connecticut, in February at the WINS conference. Uh, So thank you, Heather Kaplan and Alyssa Rumsey, for putting that conference together. I learned so much there. It really solidified me as a Hayes dietitian 
And I uh, can't thank them enough for putting me in contact with Beth. She's been an awesome resource in terms of starting up my own private practice, which is running and going now. So if you're interested in working with me one on one, don't feel um, you know hesitant at all about reaching out. Worth W E R T H your wild nutrition at gmail.com. And we'll set up a time to talk privately. But uh, Beth has been great with that. She is a Hayes dietitian as well. She works mostly with chronic dieters uh, who are trying to break out of that pattern and those with digestive disorders like IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, and other similar disorders. She has so much to share when it comes to just thinking about our patients as, you know, people, our clients as people, and for individuals with ED, uh, what life is really like, and whether that ED means they are, you know, weight less than their body weight really should be or way more than their body weight, you know, may be comfortable at. Uh, she has so much information to share. And I really think that this episode will be funny and educational for anyone. So take a listen. Um, and at the end of the episode, if you do have time, please rate and review. I'm getting more and more each week and I just want to keep that going so other people who are interested in learning more about eating disorders can find the podcast. So here we go. Beth throws in. Thanks for joining me, Beth. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're in Southbury, Connecticut. Uh, it's nice to be with another Hayes dietitian in Connecticut. Yes, for a long time I felt like I was on an <laughs> island and I'm slowly finding other Hayes providers in the state. Yeah, it's great. So um, I met Beth at the WINS conference in February and that was um, thanks to Heather for putting us together. And I just wanted to talk to you because um, you know a lot about eating disorders and chronic dieting and how they play in with um, digestive disorders. Mm -hmm. So I just want to start with how did you first get involved in nutrition at all? Oh, at all. Okay, this is a goes back a while, but um, I started my first diet when I was nine. Uh, and after that, it was just a lifelong battle, I guess, with my body, um, trying to figure out how to keep myself small yeah. um, in a body that didn't want to be as small as I thought it needed to be. Yeah. And uh, I ended up going to college starting as an advertising design major and then switching, as you did also, to journalism for a year. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I remember standing on campus and calling my mom. I guess I was at a payphone because I'm going back to like the early <laughs> 90s, folks. <laughs> and I remember saying to her, I don't know what to do here. And she said, Well, you know a lot about nutrition. Why don't you look into that? And I didn't even think about that as a career because, yeah. you know, all the information I had about nutrition was from my mom, from my grandmother, also chronic dieters, disordered eaters, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Um, and and from like the manicurist, right, the hair salon. It, there wasn't like I didn't go visit in all the times I had dieted in my life. I never went to see a registered dietitian. Not to say that I wouldn't have also been put on a diet. Yeah. But I went to all, you know all of the commercial plans. The the I'm gonna call it photocopied, but it wasn't. It was like. Uh, you know, the mimeographs, <laughs> yeah. like dittos, you know, yeah. um, passed around high school for different diets, like the grapefruit right. diet and the seven day diet and the hot dog diet and the cabbage What's the soup hot dog diet? Oh, the hot dog diet is a two day diet where you eat hot dogs, canned beets, and you get a half a cup of ice cream at the end of the day. I will tell you, and that was my first diet. When you were nine? When I was nine, I did lose weight. I won't say pounds for 
Yeah, of course. And of course it came back because that's what happens. Um, But I will never touch beats again because I think they are disgusting. And that was like the beginning of me not listening to my own body cues that there's something I don't like and yet I'm eating it because I think it's going to do something for me. Yeah. So um, and the good thing is that... um, you know, a portion of Beats is high FODMAP, so <laughs> I don't even have to worry about it anymore. They weren't good for you anyway. <laughs> well, not good for my body, right? Yeah. So then I did switch majors to nutrition and figured out, hey, I'm really good at microbiology, so this is a good fit. <laughs> not me. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we can... We can pass notes around about my organic <laughs> chemistry experience to your microbiology experience but um, the sciences came really easily to me and they had a wonderful nutrition program at University of Maryland and then um, so I went with it and then I did my internship up in New York and um, and got my master's there too in nutrition education and then that the, you know the rest is history started yeah. my career couldn't find a job because it was one of it was a recession. Yeah, I got a job at WIC, Women, Infants, and Children, and that was a real smack to the theory versus practice. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. So you mentioned that you got the idea for nutrition from your mom. Was she dieting too during your childhood? Or My so whole on? life. So your since life. she's since she was sixteen, she put herself on a diet, and she lives in a very small body now, mm-hmm. and she. Um, identifies like that's her identity as her smaller body so um, she still does it and she feels that that's a good place for her Uh, so it's a struggle for me because I did go to school almost to prove her wrong that certain foods were not bad for me and certain foods were not necessarily good for me that you know all foods could be part of my life I didn't have to cut things out for years although I did there were I went through decades of not eating certain foods again I'm not going to mention them because I don't want to trigger anyone um, because of the fear of becoming uh, having a bigger body right yeah um you know side note I eat all of them now um, (laughs) but that took some work yeah right so what is it like growing up with a parent who is so focused on like weight or losing weight or diets yeah I would say you know for children growing up in a dieting household you learn at a very early age that your body is not good just as it is that it needs to be manipulated um I don't know that she necessarily pushed it on me although I felt that there was something wrong with my body if there was something wrong with her body then there had to be something wrong with my body especially since I'm one half of her so when she would say things that were negative about her body I looked to those things in my body and in many cases the things that she was upset that were big on her body were bigger on my body right so for sure I took those messages so you know when we speak poorly about our bodies in front of children they take that in, you yeah. know, they take that in and, and they uh, then are able to look at themselves as not, not necessarily good. And the, you know, the, the thing I learned from that uh, as a child of that and as, I mean, I still deal with it sometimes, right. you know, dealing yeah, with family course. members who believe in healthism and ableism and really use their privilege of being thin to their advantage, which I understand this is a society we live in. Yeah. Um, but then to ra- then the next generation of raising children um, is to get them not to feel that way about th- their body. And in my house, they're not given those messages, but there's still so much surrounding yeah. them, school and media and social media for sure, telling them that their bodies aren't good. Yeah. So you kind of led into a few of my, my questions, but so you're a mom, right? Yes. You have t- two kids. I have two kids. And how did you, you know, go into that without giving them the same messages? Like, How do you go about your life and not influence 
you know, them and the way that you were? So I would say that my the way I dieted or my disordered eating was... Do I, you use those interchangeably? I think so, case? yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I actually spoke to a predominant um, psychotherapist recently, and she said dieting is an eating disorder. Okay. And so she basically said, she's not my therapist, but she yeah. said, I would have diagnosed you with an eating disorder, even though... I don't have the classics. Yeah. You know, I definitely have body dysmorphia or had, you know, foods that I wouldn't eat. I had the black and white thinking, right. but it wasn't to the point where it messed with my meta- metabolic health. Right. So, and maybe it did, but not yeah. enough for it to be, you know, triggered to trigger any um, physician to say, hey, maybe you should cut that out. Right. Um, side story on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, jumped to about 10 years ago, I got a really nasty intestinal infection, mm-hmm. um, C. diff. Yeah. And oh. it triggered my <laughs> IBS. And I and lo- IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Everyone. Yeah. Irritable bowel syndrome. And before they could figure out what was wrong with me, I ended up in the hospital. Um, just, you know, yeah, you know, C. diff in, is bad. In the ER, <laughs> really right, trying to cure this thing. I had an endoscopy, a colonoscopy, everything, right? But in that span of time where they were trying to figure out what I had, I lost a significant amount of weight because I couldn't eat. I, yeah. it was, it's very uncomfortable. And also, whatever you eat just comes right out, right? right. C. Diff. And I remember going to my gynecologist for a visit and telling her about it. And she praised me on the weight loss. And here I'm thinking, hello. <sighs> Yeah, this is C. diff. You should be, you know, talking about how I can get my health back, not about how my body got smaller. Like, that's the benefit. It was awful. Yeah. I was so so surprised because I really think that she's, you know, to use a young person's term, woke, but I guess not woke enough. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) clearly not woke enough. Right. (laughs) That she would, you know, think that your illness was helpful in your regular life. So to get back to the, I know I went on a tangent there. But when it came to my kids, one, I made sure that whatever I thought about my own body, I didn't say out loud. Mm-hmm. so that they didn't hear those thoughts. Not to say that there is an intergenerational trauma of from course. dieting and they have their own body image stuff, but you know it wasn't going to come straight from me yeah. out of my mouth. Um, two, I tried to provide them, and in the beginning it was more healthy, quote-unquote healthier foods because – I was still, you know, this is going back. My kids are 16 or 19. So this yeah. is before I really um, became a health at every size practitioner. But I never was a weight management practitioner. So mm-hmm. I wasn't looking to make them smaller. I just wanted to make sure that they had all the nutrients they could possibly get in. And I was concerned for their health, you know. Yeah. And and that's also, you know, that there's a bit of orthorexia in there. There's the healthism, but I, you know, I definitely bought into that when they were little, like I want to make sure that I raise them right, that they're healthy, that they have good eating habits, all those yeah. things. It wasn't until my son is now 19, so it wasn't until my son was um in early middle school where I started to explore mindful eating for myself and then subsequently brought it to my household and my daughter has always been an intuitive eater she's 16 because she didn't know the other ways and my son from hearing me talk about it 
practiced it and is an intuitive eater now you know so it's um you know they were when they were little there was you know that bit of time where I was like you have to eat the fruits and vegetables we don't want cancer you know that kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) which isn't isn't true you know you know they ate fruits and vegetables but they could also eat the other stuff when you eat the other stuff it doesn't cancel out the benefits of fruits and vegetables right so you know have the cheese sauce on your broccoli it doesn't negate the benefits of eating broccoli right yeah definitely but chocolate sauce on your broccoli it doesn't yeah. negate the benefits <laughs> whatever, of broccoli whatever. right right yeah okay and then the other thing you brought up was that you know chronic dieting can be considered an eating disorder mm-hmm. so like there seems to be an enormous amount of people who are on diets all the time is that are you saying that most most of these people have eating disorders or you would say like they need to address something in their eating? So as a dietitian, I don't diagnose. Right, right. right yeah. So what I will say is that people who start diets are at risk of an eating disorder. Yeah. So it depends on where they go with that. Sort right? of like that gateway. It's towards, a gateway. I mean, yeah. it's uh, you, there's statistics and you can look them up and put them in the show notes or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but there are statistics that show that eating disorders um, are triggered by dieting behaviors right so if we start kids young and say your body's not right you need to eat this not that mm-hmm. we're putting them on the path to try to manipulate their bodies yeah right yeah. so if we want to help the next generation to avoid having eating disorders then the best thing we can do is stop them from starting dieting right, right. it's like the gateway right? and and your daughter at 16 now is probably being exposed to all of these you know media campaigns of diets and celebrities looking a certain way. Does she ever talk about them? She is, but you know, she, she's exposed to it, but she also has me at home. Yeah. So I'm constantly calling out the BS and media. And I think I've given her pretty good training in media literacy, not to say that she doesn't have body image issues. She's 16. I right. think we all have had body image issues. You, if you live in this society, right? Yeah. Nobody's body is ever perfect, but, um, she's got a pretty good head on her shoulder and um, and she's aware of it and she will call it out to me too. So she will text me from school in, uh, you know, in her phys ed class and they're talking about nutrition and say, the gym teacher just said this, is it true? And I'll say, no, this is it. And then she'll, so cool. she'll call, yeah, she calls things out. What so. are some examples? Um, off the top of my head, this is last semester, so I'm trying to think. Uh, she... I think she contacted me and said, um, if you eat milk, if you drink milk, too much milk, you're going to get, um, what did she say? It was like, it can lead to breast cancer or clogged milk. I don't know. It was so weird. It was like, it's not the same. It doesn't come from there. The milk comes from a cow. It's not from a human. Yeah. Um, you know, one of those things. And yeah. then, and then oh, the hormones in the milk will make your period come early. So young girls shouldn't have milk or it was oh, like all great. this weird milk stuff. And I was yeah. like, Oh no. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. Milk is great for young girls. Yes. It's wild. For everybody. Yeah. True. If you can tolerate it. Yeah. Right. Um, so that kind of brings us to the digestive disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, you're saying you can tolerate it. So you see a lot of patients with both an eating disorder or chronic dieting and digestive disorders? So I have two groups of people I okay. see. I see people who have disordered eating who are looking to get off the diet cycle. Mm-hmm. And I have, you know, eating disordered um, clients with eating disorders mixed in there as well. Both, right. You know, diagnosed. Um, 
who have come out of treatment, who need to go into a higher level of care, but also, you know, chronic dieters, people who are just so unhappy yeah. um, that their bodies aren't doing what they want them to do. I see them. And then I see those people who have dis- digestive disorders like irritable bowel syndrome, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is also called SIBO. Yeah. I see people with irritable bowel diseases, and those are autoimmune, so colitis and um, Crohn's disease. I see people with gastroparesis, which is a slowing of the gastric system that we see a lot with people with anorexia nervosa. Um, So I see a lot of different digestive disorders. And, you know, if if I could show you a visual right now, I'd show you my Venn diagram (laughs) of those with disordered eating and those with digestive disorders overlap a lot. Can you talk about that a little? Sure. So, for instance, um, people who have bulimia right. uh, and purge, yeah. they can change the peristalsis of their uh, esophagus and can mess with the function of the muscles in the esophagus, and that can trigger IBS mm-hmm. and other and reflux. That's 100% um, me, by the way. Yes. <laughs> I have both those things from bulimia for yeah. like six years. Yeah. yeah, so makes sense, right? Yeah. And then on the other side of the spectrum with anorexia, when you're not eating, you're restricting, um, your body in order to survive slows your metabolism, slows mm. all of your um, body functions, right? And one of the things that slows is your digestive system. Right. And so delayed gastric emptying actually causes nausea, vomiting, early satiety, um, constipation. So all of those things are seen a lot of times with people who have anorexia. And this is when, you know, they're recovering. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think the statistic I have, and I can share the data with you, is 84% of people with eating disorders have digestive disorders and 15% of people with digestive disorders have eating disorders. Yeah, so pretty big overlap. It is, it is. And I'm guessing that that number of people with digestive disorders will grow because now that we have the diag- the um, diagnosis of ARFID, yeah. so uh, with ARFID, because it's not directly related to body dysmorphia, um, more people will be diagnosed based on their food fear mm-hmm. than, you know, an avoidance. So yeah. that piece will, will, I think that number will grow also. So I think, at least for me, whenever I was like learning about eating disorders, they always talked about, you know, when you're developing an eating disorder and then, you know, treatment, but they never talk about, you know, after like, and you're kind of talking about all these disorders or digestive issues that can kind of happen while you're recovering. They can happen while you're in the throes of the disorder. Right. They can happen while you're recovering. They can last up to a year after you've started to work on recovery or they can last longer. Yeah. You know, unfortunately some go away, some don't, we don't have um, an answer yet. What we are finding out is that our microbiota. So the, the microorganisms that live in our gut play a big role in, um, in digestive disorders. So those with uh, eating disorders tend to have a lower um, amount of diversity amongst the microbiota, meaning that there aren't as many different kinds of good bugs in there. So the more diverse our microbiota is, um, the le- the healthier our gut seems to be. That seems to be the correlation. We don't have any... Yeah. Um, is it the same for binge eating or is it just anorexia, bulimia? Probably all of them. Yeah. You know, probably all of them. Um, I'm, I'm not sure specifically if binge eating disorder was studied in the research that I had read. Right. Um, or the research that was presented. I was recently at uh, Digestive Disease Week mm-hmm. and it was mentioned there. So um, it's a conference for... Um, digestive disorders so 
uh, that was mentioned. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Um, So you're chronic dieters when you work with them and these people with eating disorders or digestive disorders what's your first step like how do you get them back to being normal Hmm. or whatever normal means (laughs) get them on the road to recovery (laughs) yeah um i think i usually start with reasoning with them right so going to the (laughs) logical (laughs) piece of it right so talking about um why diets don't work so diets work but then when you go off them they don't stay yeah, working no one talks about that after right it's like you see the 30 days and then what yeah. about day 40 yeah so i was yeah. at the netic conference also last month that's the um national eating disorder i'm gonna mess this up national- association Nita. no nedic oh um well i'll tell you we'll later. figure it out we'll figure yeah it out. but it's in canada it's canada's okay. international oh, cool yeah so I recently went to Nedic, yeah, and it's a conference in um, in Canada for eating disorders, and we were talking about how to um, how to share the data, you know, with yeah. people. And one of the things one of the gentlemen who was presenting had said was that after a couple of months, I think it's five months, you gain back fifty seven percent, and then it's like three years, it's seventy eight percent. I know Tracy Mann has a study out that says up to ninety five percent. So it's a percent big, of what percent of weight gain back. Okay, a percent of people who gain weight back. Okay, right, um, or gain all the weight back. Right. right? Um, so I share the data with them. I also share with them the set point theory. So I don't know if you've talked about this before on yeah, your podcast. A little, but you can explain. Yeah. So the set point theory is basically where your body sits in a weight range um, when you're not um, manipulating it, either dieting, restricting, or mindlessly overeating. Right. And um, that weight can be, you know, a range depending on the size of your body. It could be five to ten pounds. It could be twenty to fifty pounds depending on what kind of body you come in right um so basically the set point is where we land when we're not messing with our yeah kind of where our bodies are happy right where our bodies are happy so our body is the only thing that knows where our set point is it can't be something that we read on a chart it's not in our bmi which is a bs thing anyway yeah um so i usually share a graphic with them that i have about how dieting doesn't work and how when you do diet you reset your set point higher Mm -hmm. um, each time because when you go on a diet or when you restrict um, you'll initially lose some weight but what happens is a cascade of effects of hormones being released and um, metabolism slowing yeah you were talking about that with anorexia yeah so that your body is really just doing its best to survive because our primal brain doesn't know the difference between starvation and purposely not feeding ourselves yeah, appropriately which right? like is starvation it is yes yeah. yes but but there's a consciously doing it and then there's you know food scarcity right not having access to food but the brain doesn't know the difference between the two so what will happen is that our our body will release hormones to make us hungry to make us think about food and what we think is willpower will end up going out the window but that willpower isn't just going out the window our body has kicked into survival mode so what will happen is that we get hungry we'll quote unquote fall off the wagon and we'll refeed and then when we finally do gain the weight back and our body feels that we're at a safe place it will keep in some instances will put on extra weight so that that's the insurance weight yeah right and then um and then increase our set point to that amount so in case starvation quote-unquote comes again right our bodies will 
be prepared for it. And over time, what, we, what we've seen in research is that the more often you participate in intentional weight loss activities, the higher your weight ends up being. So when I do start working with a client, I like to let them know that this is how it works. How have you experienced this? And so yeah. many of them will be like, oh my goodness, I <laughs> can't exactly believe me. it. Right? Yeah. So is there, what's their response typically like after that? Crying. Yeah. Right? Like uh, th- all this work, all this time, all this energy, uh, all of this brain power, right? And brain space that I've used to try to do something that actually did the opposite yeah. is just so upsetting. So there's, you know, it's almost like the um, stages of grief. You know, there's the anger, there's the disbelief, there's the bargaining, yeah. you know, the bargaining piece being, well, what if I try it one more time? Let me see if I could really keep just it off this. Just half diet. Right. <laughs> like, let me just, yeah. put, like, like, let's make e- uh, intuitive eating the hunger fullness diet and see if we can make that a diet, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of that. And then eventually when there's some acceptance, they're willing to really um, lean into intuitive eating, listening to their body knowing that you can eat for joy for sadness and it can be a coping tool you know there's there's ways to use food for hunger and fullness and there's ways to use food to cope and both can be appropriate yeah you know so yeah we work through that and so they get pretty emotional and then do you eventually see them you know when they accept that they make strides towards actually learning how to be an intuitive eater yeah so when when we get past that first initial piece and I have them practicing listening to their hunger and fullness and really collecting data on themselves to yeah. learn why they eat, what they choose, why they chose it. Then we can look at the data and say, okay, which behavior, you know, takes up the most brain power and which behavior do you want to change to get you to a place where you feel like you're going to recover from this or move on from these behaviors, those kinds of things. So we'll work on that. And then I also teach them media literacy. Like I teach them to look for what are you being sold? Who's preying on your fears and insecurities to either get you to buy something or do something, right? So a lot of times when you see images of the the thin ideal woman and she's smiling and she's eating salad, like nobody sits around smiling eating salad, (laughs) right? Yeah, I'll smile and eat ice cream, but like that's about it, right? Or smile because you're eating with someone you're friends with and you're at a restaurant, it doesn't matter what you're eating, you're with the person you want to connect with and so you're connecting over food, right? So that's that's also a piece of it. Um, And I also have them sort of rework what they look at. So if somebody's preying on your fears and insecurities, you can unfollow them. You can delete them. Oh, you can yeah. do all that stuff. And same with doctors. If doctors are weight shaming you, you can advocate for your health. And if they don't come around, you can change doctors. At least in the U.S. you can. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, you have access to other practitioners. They may not all you know, be Hayes practitioners. It's very hard to find um, a Hayes doctor yeah but you can certainly share that information if people have bought the health at every size books there's letters in the back that you can actually use with your doctor to explain what you're willing to talk about and what you don't want to talk about right yeah have you had a lot of success with doctors like communicating about patients and being like you know the weight doesn't matter you don't need to talk to them about losing weight for this You know, I don't really have close connections with the physicians because when people come in with eating disorder diagnoses, I'm usually dealing with their therapist. Right. So I have had conversations with therapists and although they're not all haze informed, they get it. Yeah. Um, So the few that I do refer to and work with 
are aware and they get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also work really hard with my clients to learn to advocate for themselves to yeah. say, you don't need to step on a scale. Right. You don't need to have these conversations. You know, you can come with the agenda they're working for you. You pay them. Yeah. Right. It took me a long time to learn that like, you don't have to get weighed when you go to mm-hmm. the doctor. I remember going and like telling them, no, I don't want to step on the scale. And they would be like, are you sure? Like, why not? And I'd be like, why are they pressuring me? Because they get reimbursement right. for an, an office visit that has all the data. And unfortunately, one of the data points is BMI. So if you say to the doctor, I don't want to get weighed, please write refused. If they write refused, they will get reimbursed. So that's a way to get them off your back. And then you can also say at that point, because you're mm-hmm. rightly so, your anxiety is probably really yeah, high. Really stressed out your blood pressure yeah, measurement. is like, you know, and imagine, <laughs> you know, we, we advocate for ourselves in our bodies. Yeah. Imagine advocating for yourself if you're in a large body. Right. How hard that that is. And that's, you know, that stigma that when you walk into a doctor's office, you already feel it. And then when you say, I'm not getting on a scale, you know, all the doctor wants to talk about is telling you to lose weight. Yeah. Right? So um, to advocate for yourself, but also then say to them, please write refused and please put a note in there that I will never be weighed in this office. Yeah. And if I notice a weight, a dramatic weight change in my body, I will let you know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like because if it's could, from C. diff or something. Right. Yeah. Like we can tell from how our clothes change or how we feel that something's not right. And if weight um, is a signal that something's going wrong, then we can share that information. Like yeah. if I go to my doctor and say, all of a sudden my pants don't fit. You know, maybe there's something there. He doesn't need to know or she doesn't need to know the number. But if I say all of a sudden, yeah, I've had a weight increase and I haven't changed the way I eat. So what what do you think? Right. Right. And it could be a whole host of things. Even, you know, diabetes, that weight gain is a symptom of diabetes. No, weight gain doesn't cause yeah. diabetes. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you were talking about, you know, if you're in a larger body, it's a lot harder to advocate for yourself at a doctor's office and you feel that that pressure. Do you have any tips or tools that you give to clients about how to do that? So because I'm not in a larger body yeah. and, and I'll, you know, my, I'll name my privilege, you know, right. that I'm oh, a yeah. white cisgendered female, you know, in an acceptable size body for our society. Right. Um, so I don't have that lived experience. I, internally, I do for fear that a doctor would call me out for my own body yeah. dysmorphia. I grew up that way, like thinking, thinking, you were thinking that, way. That, that they were going to shame me for my body. Um, and so that's not me. Yeah. What I will do is I will um, let them know that they can advocate for themselves. I will also um, validate how hard that is for them yeah. and direct them to fat activists and people in larger bodies, that their blogs, their websites that they may want to read about, books they may want to read yeah. um, to learn about how they can advocate for themselves in a larger body. Because it's very easy for me to say, just go in there and you know give it to them. But yeah. I'm also well-educated <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I am, well, you know, well, I, I fit the mold. So yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to have the same pushback. Right. How do you explain to someone, because I have this issue all the time, not a patient or a client, but like someone outside who's just like, well, how can you disregard all the data about weight uh, and say that it doesn't matter for their health? So it's not that I disregard it, yeah. but I think there's a difference between causation and correlation. Right. And the difference there is that causation is weight causes the disease, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not shown in the data. Um, there is a correlation they can show that weight correlates to a disease but that that's like saying that yellow teeth cause cancer 
right? But yeah. really, <laughs> they cigarettes smoke. cause the yellow teeth, which also causes the cancer, right? Yeah. So the weight doesn't necessarily cause the disease, but what might be causing the disease is the weight stigma that people experience in larger bodies, which keeps them from going for preventive health services because right. they don't want to be body shamed in a doctor's office or told that their weight is the cause of any of their issues, yeah. right? And so access to health care is really more of um, a driver of morbidity and mortality. Loneliness is also, so is uh, social inequities. Um, uh, Feeling like you can't exercise. Yeah, lack of access is also related to socioeconomic status. Yeah. Right? So all of those things, but those aren't research because nobody's funding those studies. Yeah, I remember at the WIND conference, there was the researcher who mentioned like she can't get funding for a study if it doesn't include BMI. Right, or if it doesn't use the O word. Right. O being obesity, right? So yeah. she has to put that in her study. <laughs> yeah. And that's not really what she's <clears throat> studying, but in order to, and even at that point, even if she does get the funding, she's not going to get published. Right. Right. So yeah. there's, there's that piece too. Yeah. Great. Um, so, just to, you know, if you're going to give one piece of advice to a client or someone about like, how do you, you know, reach out to someone, make the first move to change their way of thinking about themselves or that they need to change their body, what would it be? I don't know that I would tell somebody that they need to change their bodies. No, no, no. I mean, what would you tell someone who, who thinks that? Oh, like, uh, I probably said it wrong, but saying like, you know, if someone's constantly cr- dieting, thinking they need to change how they are, or like that being fat is Got a it. problem. Got it. Uh, so what I what we start a conversation is what will being in that smaller body bring you? Right. Right. So what are you looking for from getting to that smaller body? So it might be I'm looking for love. I'm looking for. Um, I'm looking to be able to exercise. I'm yeah. looking to. Um, I don't know, romp in the grass and smile in a white dress like they do on TV, right? Yeah. And so what it usually comes down to, which is the core for everybody, is everybody just wants to be accepted. Yeah. Right? So that's where I like to start with them. If they can get to a place where they can accept their own body, like body neutrality, right, on a spectrum, from Mm. body hate to body love, in there in the middle someplace is body neutrality. And probably between body neutrality and body love is body acceptance. So if you can get to a place where you care enough to take care of your body, yeah, that's where I want them to be. Okay. So, you know, if you don't like something, and this is a, a, an analogy that Reagan Chastain, she has a blog called Dances with Fat. I recommend reading it. It's great. All right. Um, she has an analogy that she uses that if you were to be given a gift and you really didn't like it, right? Yeah. You'd re-gift it, you'd shove it in the closet. You know, you really wouldn't take care of it, right? You'd hide it away, you didn't like it. But if you had a gift that you liked, you'd put it on a shelf, you'd dust it, you'd show it off, right? You'd take care of it. Um, and that's the same thing with our bodies. If we don't care enough about our bodies, if we don't like our bodies, we're not going to care to take care of them. Yeah. We'll just put them on the back burner. You feel a pain, you leave it alone, you don't care, you're not going to go to a doctor. But if you can get to a place where you can care, where you can care enough about your body to care for your body, then you're going to be able to take care of it. Then you might be able to enjoy the benefits of health, right? right? So then you might be able to go get preventive care. Then you might find joyful movement, 
then you might find foods that feel good in your body so that you don't f- feel digestive issues or you enjoy the food you're eating yeah. and then you eat to satisfaction rather than eating past fullness because nothing's going to satisfy you when you're all you're eating is baby carrots. Yeah. <laughs> it's always carrots. Carrots like, and almonds. Like whenever I talk to people, they're like, I eat like about five pounds of carrots like a week. And you're like, well... What about the other foods? Yes, that was one of that was one of my yeah. filler foods for a long time. Oh, yeah. you're hungry? Eat some baby carrots. Yeah. yeah, and my the first person I interviewed on the podcast thought it was funny that my logo is like a running carrot because she's like, <laughs> those are the two things I had to stop doing when I got over my eating disorder. Yeah, carrots and running. You know, maybe the carrot is running away. Yeah, like no more baby carrots. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I still eat baby carrots now. Yeah, but instead of eating enough where it turns my palms orange, we yeah. learned about that in school. Yeah. right. Now I have like yesterday I had two. Right. It's like oh, I I didn't have a vegetable dinner. Let me take two of those. <laughs> pop those in. It's like okay, that's okay. You know, yeah. I didn't have a vegetable dinner. It's okay. But when I was looking for something else, it's like oh, let me just grab those because they're right. there. They're easy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And also because I do have IBS, there's some vegetables that I can't just grab. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. So carrots are a quote unquote safe food for me because they're mm-hmm. not going to hurt me right. when I eat them. Right. Um, so I know this has been kind of scattered all over the place, um, <laughs> but I had a patient I wanted to ask you about. Okay. Um, she has tried intuitive eating prior to, to meeting me, mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of become what you mentioned where it's like the hunger fullness diet. And she really thinks that, you know, she's trying really hard um, to, to do intuitive eating, but I think she spends like 90% of her time thinking about like if she's hungry or not. Uh, is that something you see a lot with people who like start it? You know, it, everybody's experience is different, yeah. right? So my guess is that she took intuitive eating and did turn it into the hunger fullness yeah. diet. So I think... She'll like only have little snacks, you know? like Yeah, so I think you need to explore that there's more to satisfaction than just being full. Right. And explore the joy of eating as well. Uh, and, and also... I would find out from her, maybe she's keeping a food log. I'm sure she's keeping a food yeah. log. Um, what food she's choosing to fill her hunger and if she enjoys these foods. I'm wondering if she's ever tried a mindful meal where she thinks about how does this taste? How does this feel in my mouth? Do I like the taste of this? Do I like this temperature? Asking all those questions, you know, becoming, I think, in, in the intuitive eating book, they call yeah. it a food anthropologist, right? right? And doing some curious observation around why she's choosing what she's choosing and exploring that piece with her yeah. uh, to see if and I, I assume to her I don't know if you use that pronoun but yeah um, explore with her where the idea that that food was quote-unquote good for her came from like go back to the origins of the diet rules that brought that on and yeah s- and and have her realize are you following a diet rule still have you ditched this diet rule you know a lot of people who um, ditch dieting um, do swing their pendulum from restrictive eating all the way back to like the diet rebel the mindless oh, yeah. eating and that's okay I feel like that's a step in there like yeah because the restrict binge cycle like you've been restricting for so long go ahead and eat some you of have those to foods. have the like phase where you kind of have everything yeah you have to just let it all out and then after that is when you decide well which of these things do I like yeah which don't I like <laughs> which even make me feel good yeah and then even down the road you're deciding well which will help me to confer health in my body yeah right yeah so that that piece is it's individual and it's you know but I would definitely explore why she's choosing certain foods you know okay. go back to the diet origin of oh what made you why did you start eating that in the first place yeah awesome you know 
So I like to end each interview with just asking, you know, what your favorite food is, because we talk so much about food and everyone's like scared of it or trying to figure out what to eat and what's good for them. But food just makes us happy, too. Um, so what is yours? Oh, I like so many foods. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I am a picky eater, but I and bec- and I also have digestive issues, so I have to be wary of that. But um, I would say probably my favorite fruit is a mango. Okay. Love those things. They're I really good. Do you like day. dried mango or do you like just regular mango? The big mango. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Real mango. I like those. Um, um, my favorite dessert is a brownie. Oh, me too. Yeah. Like I've, I explored all the desserts. Yeah. And ice cream's a close second, you know, yeah. but brownies, those do it for me. Yeah. Good ones. Like gooey? Good, gooey, or, yeah. chocolatey. Mm-hmm. And also because I do follow the low FODMAP diet and I have a non-celiac wheat sensitivity, I can't have regular brownies. Oh, gosh. So to find a really good gluten-free brownie it's, is not easy. And I yeah. found, oh, I found really? a brownie. Yeah. Do you have a recommendation? Sure. Uh, well, I don't know how far reaching this podcast is, but <laughs> By The Way Bakery in Manhattan <laughs> and in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I think they have a few other locations. Okay. Make the best brownies. Totally gluten-free worth it brownies. if you're ever down there. Gluten-free. I even think they're dairy-free too. Oh, wow. They're And they are delicious. They're delicious. Okay. Um, and they don't pay me to say that. I just like <laughs> they can pay me in brownies if they want. Yeah, to. that's how I feel about peanut butter. I have a brand I'm very loyal to, and yeah. they definitely don't pay me, but I advertise for them quite a bit. Yeah, I got that. <laughs> um, so I think mangoes and brownies are probably my two favorite foods. <laughs> that's um, awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'll go with those. Okay, great. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. I've learned a lot, and you're really, really informative. So thank oh, you. Thank you. Yeah. If you like this, please remember to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Um, Just go and star it at the bottom or scroll down and hit review. It really helps uh, me find other listeners and spread the message about eating disorders and the need to reform how we think about our bodies and weight uh, throughout the world. So thank you and have a wonderful week.